This is Unfilter, episode 255 for October 18th, 2017. My fellow Americans, as President of the United States, my highest obligation is to ensure the safety and security of the American people. History has shown that the longer we ignore a threat, the more dangerous that threat becomes. Welcome to Unfiltered, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's hopefully saving you from watching all of that news you really shouldn't be watching. My name is Chris, and my buddy Mr. Chase, he's out one more time this week. He says he's looking forward to coming back next week. And I'm sure he'll have many, many tales to tell us because he's been in California now for about two weeks. That'll change a person. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. No, no, we are gathered on episode 255, as always, to dig into some new cyber news, including... The big cybersecurity story of the week. Then we'll transition, because cyber seems to do that to us, to Russia, where Russia apparently is infiltrating the election via Pokemon Go. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk, we're talking about that. Glenn Greenwald joins Cocker Tuckerson for a very interesting conversation, and I'll play some bits of that. And then it, it appears that uh, Comey's been trapped. There was some documents released, and he's got some splaining to do. And also some some Hillary news as well. And then it's been a few weeks since the media really was all that excited about Hurricane Harvey. So it seems like now is the time to check in on how things are going down there. And then we'll get to the meat of today's show. I'm fairly convinced that Donald Trump just wants to go to war. He doesn't care who it's going to be with as long as it's one of the big bad guys and war is going to happen. And I'll make my case in today's episode. And then we have a few other things to talk about. Some Some really interesting news coming out of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I said Hollywood. Just we're gonna we're gonna wrap up the Weinstein coverage with a couple of notes. And speaking of notes, we'll end it all on a high note. So let's get started, guys, with the cyber. Well, a security feature at the heart of most Wi-Fi-enabled devices, from smartphones to computers, is now putting nearly all of them at risk. A bug known as Crack exposed a fundamental flaw in the technology that secures wireless networks with a password. With Crack, a hacker can access a secure Wi-Fi network and collect data from the traffic stream. Oh, man. Jeez, this is clunky, huh? Wow. So they're, they're talking about the, the ability to essentially reset WPA keys to zero, zero them out, and then do man-in-the-middle attacks, get access to the data. And WPA2 is sort of WPA2 is sort of the, um, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it was the encryption standard for Wi-Fi that was quote-unquote government grade. And it was, it was the one that really gave companies and businesses permission to deploy Wi-Fi everywhere. Once WPA2 hit the market, Wi-Fi adoption in businesses really took off. They can grab information from nearly any modern wireless device. Here to explain is CNET's executive editor, Roger Chang. Good to see you. Good to be here. So we hear about these cyber attacks. We don't really need to watch this. You guys are familiar with crack at this point. Ask Noah and TechSnap did really good coverage about it. Um, and I doubt their coverage here on uh, CBS News is going to be much better. But it's just sort of noted here in the show. This is sort of a major, major moment because uh, we have these so commonly now that it, it's sort of easy to let them pass by. There's a lot of devices that are not going to be protected by this. A lot of IoT devices, a lot of television sets that have Wi-Fi, 
all of the devices over the last couple of years that manufacturers have been adding Wi-Fi into, like DVRs and heck, you know what? It's kind of funny. Even my sous vide machine has a Wi-Fi chip in it. It's. It, I think it's. You know, is that going to get fixed? Are all these Android devices going to get fixed? So we really have our uh, a situation that um, really seems seems quite quite bad. Like hardware in, is just uh, not getting updated, and uh, so they're just abandoned devices. So they just remain, but they remain in use. So they're just vulnerable, and we're just adding more and more things to that list now. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Tell me in the comments. What do you what do you do with that? Because we have bigger problems. Apparently, Pokemon Go is being used by Russia. Aside from North Korea, the frenzy over Russian interference in the U.S. has now reached new heights. The global gaming sensation Pokemon Go is now being hyped as a meddling tool for Moscow in the U.S. election. Pokemon. Pokemon, Brooke. No this way. went far beyond. This it, it did. It went far beyond Facebook. Twitter, YouTube. The elaborate claim is that a, the uh, supposedly Russia-linked site posed as part of the Black Lives Matter movement and used the game to intensify U.S. racial tensions. Oh! However, no attempt is even made to explain how that might have influenced the U.S. election. We discussed the claim. That is my favorite Russia story of the week, though, just right there. Big, that was it right there. That was the peak. Um, and then, of course, there's the one that's probably the most noteworthy. There's news on Manafort a bit. I'll just play a portion of this. Tonight, with Paul Manafort, a key focus of investigators looking into connections between Russia and the Trump team, our NBC News investigation reveals new evidence of the money trail oh. connecting Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, to Moscow. $26 million more than has been reported before. Oh, snap. Money loaned to Manafort before 2012. What? Before 2000? Who was president? Before, wait a minute. By this man, Oleg Deripaska, a Russian billionaire with close ties to Vladimir Putin. I would think most Russian billionaires have close ties to Vladimir Putin. That's sort of how Russia works. Which may explain why, according to recently leaked emails, Manafort offered Nobody, the Russian a private briefing about the Trump campaign. They were unsecured loans. Right. So we don't know if they were paid? You can call it a loan. You can call it Mary Jane. If, it's not, if, it's not, if there's no what? intent to repay it, then it's not really a loan. It's just a payment. <laughs> so that's going to obviously, uh, well, we'll be looking into that. But I want to move on to this conversation between Greenwald and Tucker because this, this was right on point. And these two guys are really kind of on two opposite ends of a spectrum. And I like that they still come together and have a respectful and productive conversation. It's been 49 weeks and counting since the 2016 election. The hunt is still on for proof of Russian meddling. Did Putin get Trump elected? We still don't know. We did recently speak, though, to progressive journalist Glenn Greenwald, who said the press is replacing good reporting with inaccurate scandal mongering. Watch this. So, Glenn, just to, to get to the facts of this story... It is conclusively shown that the story about the 21 voting systems being hacked is untrue, correct? It's false in two ways. One is that several of the states included in the list, such as Wisconsin, California, and Texas, said that the websites that the Homeland Security Department cited have nothing to do with voting systems. They're entirely unrelated. And it's false in a second way, which is a lot of the stories, in fact, most of them said that Russia tried to hack into the voting systems, when in fact, even Homeland Security, it can only show that what they did was scan those computer systems, which is... Yeah, let's stop there. 
here because that is the crux of it. That's what we talked about during the election while this was happening is these were IP scans like vulnerability assessment scans. And at the same time that those scans were supposedly conducted by Russia, DHS was also conducting the same type of scans. Identical type of scan, but uh, it's coincidence, perhaps. I mean, they would theoretically have the IPs in the log, right? When in fact, even Homeland Security, it can only show that what they did was scan those computer systems, which is basically casing something to see for vulnerabilities and made no attempts to actually hack into them. So it was false on, on various levels. So you and I... That's the 21 states. When you hear 21 states were attacked by Russia during the election crap. It's all crap. don't agree on a lot of issues, but I think we share the same concern about this story, and that is that American journalists are being manipulated for whatever reason by the intelligence community in the United States. Also something that I've asserted on this show is that these anonymous leaks from the intelligence agencies are targeted and intended to skew the narrative in their favor and start a discussion in a certain direction without ever having to go on record with any names or anything like that or any proof. And the media has just been running with it. Although I don't think they have been tricked. I think they're doing it willingly. Reason ...by the intelligence community in the United States. And I'm wondering why, after years of having this happen to American journalists, they're allowing this to happen again. That is a good question. Why, after they've been bamboozled about so many things, the intelligence... The intelligence t- turns out they're spies. The intelligence agencies are composed of spies, and they lie. Spies lie. That's what they do. They lie. They lie for the good of the nation, they think, I would suppose. I don't know why they lie, but they lie. And so why does the media, who's supposed to be reporting fact, take the word of professional liars? And why do they do it over and over and over again? That's essentially what he's asking. It's a great question. Well, that's the thing. I would reframe that a little bit. I don't actually think so much that journalists are the victims in the sense of that formulation that they're being manipulated. I think at best what you can say for them is they're willingly and eagerly being manipulated. Um, Because what you see is over and over, they publish really inflammatory stories that turn out to be totally false. I think it's a combination of issues. Glenn's completely right, and he would know, but I think it's a combination. It's, It's access to information. So they want to have access to the information. They want to have the exclusive information. They essentially trade in information, and the better information they have, the more popular they become, the more advertising revenue they get to make. So that's one reason why they do it. The other reason, of course, is because they have a political bias, and so their political bias is probably making them more inclined to go with a certain story narrative than another or seek out a certain story narrative or be motivated to investigate a certain story narrative. And you combine multiple factors, then you, com- then you figure there's also a profit and revenue aspect of it, of course. And what happens in those cases? Nothing. They get enormous benefits when they publish recklessly. They get applause on social media from their peers. They get zillions of retweets, huge amounts of traffic. They end up on TV. They get applauded across the spectrum because people are so giddy and eager to hear more about this Russia and Trump story. And when their stories com- get completely debunked, it just kind of everybody agrees to ignore it and it mo- everyone moves on and they pay. Yes, yeah, certain narratives stick. We go with some and they come up over and over again and we just repeat them and certain ones we just completely drop and never discuss again. When I say we, I mean, I mean the, the national conversation. No price. At the same time, they're feeding and pleasing their sources by publishing these stories that their sources want them to publish. Exactly. Um, and so there's huge amounts of career benefits and reputational benefits and very little cost. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, when they publish stories that end up being debunked because the narrative they're serving is a popular one, at least within their peer circles. Yeah, it's like nobody gets fired for buying IBM back in the day in IT. And then nobody got fired for buying Microsoft. And now if you're implementing Linux, nobody gets fired for buying Red Hat. So if you, you nobody's going to get fired for going with the narrative that everybody wants. And if you misstep a couple of times, well, that's in the heat of a rushed investigation to get to the truth. Because, you know, what democracy lives and dies in the light of truth. When they publish stories that end up being debunked because the narrative they're serving is a popular one, at least within their peer circles. Exactly. Gosh, that's, that's so dishonest. I mean, I think all of us in journalism have gotten things wrong. I certainly have. And you feel bad about it. I mean, you really do. And there's a consequence. You really think there's that level of dishonesty in the American press? I think what most more, I think what it is more than dishonesty is a, a really warped incentive scheme. Yes. Bolstered by this very severe groupthink that social media is fostering in ways that we don't yet fully understand. Yes. Most it. journalists these days aren't in congressional committees or at zoning board meetings or using shoe letter reporting. They're sitting on Twitter talking to one another. And this produces this extreme groupthink where these orthodoxies arise and deviating from them are quite questioning them or challenging, believe me, um, results in all kinds of recrimination and scorn. Um, and embracing them produces this sort of in-group mentality where you're rewarded. And I think a lot of it is about that kind of behavior. Nailed it. That is what the issue is. It's a super complex issue. It's, it's not some evil conspiracy to propagandize the American people. That's, that's what Soros is doing and those things. And he pulls certain strings. But at the end of the day... It's 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 human beings that are writing this stuff. And uh, Glenn has a lot of good insights into that insights coming in from the Clinton investigation too. remember back when uh, Comey was still a thing <laughs> and he was the director of the FBI and he was investigating Hillary Clinton. Well, it looks like he drafted a statement ending the Clinton email investigation long before they'd done interviews and really had done much investigating. At least that's what appears to be coming to light now. The classified information suggests the final conclusion of the Hillary Clinton email scandal was prepared before the investigation had concluded. Former FBI Director James Comey had his final statement ready into Clinton's use of a private server while she was Secretary of State two months before the probe ended in July 2016. Let's get into this further with Samira Khan, who joins us live from Washington, D.C. Hi, Samira. Yeah, so that... Announcement by the FBI then was that charges against Clinton were not recommended. So I suppose the question now is, how could the then FBI director have had all the information at hand to make such a call if the investigation wasn't even over? Well, according to newly released documents, FBI Director James Comey began drafting his statement regarding the Clinton email investigation months before his official announcement. See, everybody knows the FBI prefers to prosecute cases that they helped inspire and facilitate. If, If they don't help inspire and facilitate your crime... That is so much more work for them. Uh, now, this is all an interesting twist to the infamous Clinton scandal where she was accused of using a private email server. Let's take a look. Oh, let's. Oh, I'm so excited. There is no classified materials. Our investigation found that there was classified information sent. So it was not true. 
And now the release is titled Drafts of Director Comey's July 5th, 2016 statement regarding email server investigation, uh, which is in reference to the press conference in which Comey announced that the Bureau would not recommend any charges. Uh, the five-page document has a list of almost 50 deleted pages and a uh, redacted email thread titled uh, Mid-Year Exam. Now, the email is marked unclassified, but the only available content is a senior official's May 16th follow-up on a redacted email from Comey dated May 2nd. And in the email, the uh, FBI official says, please send me any comments on the statement so we may roll into a master doc for discussion with the director at a future date. Thanks, Jim. Uh, but it's worth mentioning that back in August, two senators sent a letter to the new FBI director saying that they had learned Comey had drafted the statement in advance. Uh, shortly after that... So, of course, that means that's before certain interviews have been conducted, like with Uma or with Hillary. Yeah. Now, there's a new, there's a new uh, FBI director in town. There's a, there's a new sheriff. The new FBI director seems to be defending the Bureau's refusal to give up information to Congress in the Russia investigation, citing a need to protect sources. This, as Christopher Wray says, the FBI is not investigating former FBI director James Comey. Oh. Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Harris well, reports on today's developments. Somebody else might be, though. After opening the FBI office in Atlanta, Fox News asked Director Christopher Wray whether there is an open investigation into his predecessor, James Comey, who leaked privileged memos about his conversation with the president to the media. Not by the FBI. There is a uh, inspector general Office, Justice Department, Office of Inspector General investigation. How about that? So there is an investigation into Comey. Boy, is D.C. just nothing but a bunch of investigations at this point? Somebody needs to make a master chart. And I'm not joking. We need like a master chart of investigations and which ones have more precedent over the other ones. Like, obviously, Mueller's must have, or Mueller, or whatever, Butte. Bueller's must have more precedent over the Senate investigation, which would seem to have more, you know, like there must be some organization. Do we need a chart? Because now apparently James Comey is being investigated, just not by the FBI. The FBI, there is a uh, inspector general office, Justice Department, office of inspector general investigation uh, into some of his handling of the uh, Clinton email matter. After congressional complaints, raising to defend the FBI and Justice Department decision not to provide information about the sources and payments for the controversial Trump dossier that launched the FBI Russia probe. Ray emphasized the Bureau and Justice Department are working to cooperate. We have to be very careful about sources and methods. That dossier is a smoking gun of crap. Uh, and that's that's an essential aspect of what we do. Uh, and any interaction with any congressional committee needs to take that into account. So that's pretty that's a pretty crappy answer. Uh, that guy, I don't like him. I don't like the new guy. Uh, I feel like uh, I feel like it's it's uh, I don't know. It's he's like a he's like a he doesn't feel like a lawman. He feels like a politician to me. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, let me jump ahead a bit in this in this clip because I do think they talk about. Uh, some issues getting um, the uh, the uh, the uh, access to the dossier because if they can get access to that, then uh, that would sort of 
that could work back the chain that allowed for so many authorizations that led to this basically this entire investigation. The dossier is really the key to it. So here, I'm jumping ahead a bit in the clip. Congressional records reviewed by Fox News show the House Intelligence Committee made eight requests since March, but all were turned down or ignored. Oh. After issuing new subpoenas, the committee's chairman, Devin Nunez, said, after encountering a lot of resistance, we hope we'll soon be on the path to getting the information we need. The Senate Intelligence and Judiciary Committees want similar information. Democrat Dianne Feinstein said they are working through several issues. We're in a little log jam right now. <laughs> Our government's really something. I hope we can break it and get what we need, which are subpoenas to get some documents right now. After meetings on Capitol Hill this week, Facebook Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg told the website Axios that the Russian-backed ads designed to divide the American people should be released. Yeah, we'll see if that comes. So let's shift gears a little bit, because uh, the, uh, the the investigation stuff, it's just, it's, it's nonstop. It is, it is really nonstop. You could have an entire weekly podcast on the Russia investigation stuff. Um, you could have a, and all of the, all of the people that are being investigated. It's, it's really all the media really wants to talk about. It's like two or three things they can, they can sustain a conversation about. They don't seem to really have any capacity to report on any new things. And I know I don't really need to get on my soapbox with you guys because you guys, you guys know this problem. And, uh, I'm not going to preach to the choir about it. It's just, it's frustrating to see it. It is frustrating still just to see it. That's all. Uh, well, why don't we shift? Because uh, this is sort of sort of my perfect example. And, and maybe this is actually a good sign. So you guys remember Abby Martin. She used to work at RT and uh, she's made quite a name for herself. And she has this, um, she has this new series that she does. And uh, The Empire Files, I think it's called. And she went back down to Harvey now that the media sort of stopped reporting on it. And she's, uh, of course, right on point with her commentary. The corporate media was on the ground to bring mostly unwanted scenes of human suffering. Y'all trying to interview people during their worst times. Like, that's not the smartest thing to do. So I'm so and you're really trying to understand with the microphone still in my face, sorry. with me shivering cold, with my kids wet, and you still putting a microphone sorry, in my face. Classic moment that uh, we played here on the show. But almost as quickly as it came, Harvey was out of the news, a thing of the past. One month later, long after the cameras left, I wanted to see the state of Houston and how its people have recovered. With so many unprecedentedly strong hurricanes hitting the United States, Houston is much bigger than just a city getting back on its feet. It's a microcosm of the U.S. empire's ability and willingness to deal with natural disasters. I thought was Immediately, actually a good point. I saw that Houston was not only far from help, but entire neighborhoods remain in ruins. So she's looking at this in a lens that I think is an interesting one to consider the situation. Uh, obviously, the situation is still pretty bad. It's significantly bad, and they're not getting the help they need in a lot of areas. But entire neighborhoods remain in ruins, with no sign of local or federal government doing anything whatsoever. We've obviously come to almost expect this since uh, Katrina, really. It's sad because she, her, her lens, her perspective is, is, well, how we handle this could be an indication of how we could handle a much grander scale issue if there was a war or if there was some series of natural disasters. And the reality is we are not ready. We are not doing a good job. You know, it's what I see. 
And as my investigation found, the failure to address the urgent needs of my friends in Lakewood by a local, state, and federal government puppeted by big oil has much bigger implications of certain disaster in the near future and countless similar cities across the country. I mean, she kind of goes for the high drama there with when she makes the big oil points, which people ridicule her for, but it is worth considering why some areas are are um, are ignored, I suppose. But I wanted to find good news in some of this. And you can find the entire Empire Files story on this uh, on YouTube. Just search for Empire Files after Hurricane Harvey. And it's about 25, 30 minutes long. She does lots of long-form interviews, which is really interesting because nobody does that anymore. She really goes down there and tells a story. I just I just clipped for you the, like the dramatic ins and outs of it. But the most of the episode is composed of her doing really good human interviews of people that are in a serious situation. I wanted to find good news. And it turns out um, I had to go to local inmates to find it. Hurricane Harvey relief efforts getting an unexpected boost. Texas prison inmates donated more than $53,000. That money is used by the inmates to buy food and supplies while they're locked up. More than 6,600 inmates chipped in and will go to the, the American Red Cross hurricane relief efforts. So I'd like to ask for your help in finding clips about Harvey because I think going forward it's really going to be local stuff. I don't think there's going to be a lot of national coverage of it, so it's going to slip off my radar more and more. So if you find them, go to discord.me slash jupitercolony to join our Discord group. There's an unfiltered channel in there. Put your links in there. Maybe tag at producer Matt when you do it so he sees them. And I'd like to start collecting coverage for the overtime about Harvey because I don't want it to fall off our radar. It's happening everywhere else. so uh, But we could really use your help because it's going to get harder and harder for us to track that story. So discord.me slash Jupiter Colony to join the Discord and look for the Unfiltered channel. And I think producer Matt's generally idle in there or something. So if you tag him, he'll see it eventually. Now, um, I, I want to I talk about the main premise of the show today. And a lot of you, you know, you, you, you probably have assumed one thing or another about our politics on the show. Maybe Chris is a Trump supporter or Chris isn't a Trump supporter. And uh, I hope the long-term listeners know that I, I pretty much look at the situation as objectively as I can. And I've, I've, I've probably, probably never really come down as hard on Trump as I am about to in this episode. And I, I don't want you to cast me in any like anti-Trump particular light or pro-Trump particular light. I just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, we're going to play these clips and then we're going to have a discussion about what I think this is leading to. And it's, to me, it's, it's one of the worst things possible uh, uh, uh let's start with the north korea aspect there's lots of hysteria around north korea right now hysteria over hacking u.s and allied facilities has switched to north korea with the east asian state accused of cyber attacks and uh, hacking abilities quote beyond imagination beyond imagination RT's miguel francis santiago takes a closer look this is really something the way we can build up any 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 government any regime whatever you want to call it we can just really like some, some great story writers come in. Like they, we can just really make them seem like some bad guys by hyping up like they're cyber ninjas. These days, Americans are well aware that North Korea is enemy number one. Sorry, RT. It's still Russia, despite what you say. The media certainly did a great job there. And now the enemy's image is complete. All you got to do is bring out the hacking card. 
Kim Jong-un has targeted the U.S. power grid. North Korean hackers were behind the cyber attack. North Korea may have hacked a military network. North Korean hackers. North Korean hackers. North Korean hackers could soon target the U.S. And guess what? They hacked the power grid. This is this is something you've watched if you watch the show for a while. These things get turned up. All right, time to run this. It's time to run this. We get, we get turned up here. And... Um, it's building a story around North Korea. It's creating a threat. And it's a, it's, a, it's a present threat because cyber is everywhere. They might be way off in North Korea. And most people watching the news may not even know where North Korea is. But cyber is in your home. Cyber is in your pocket. So if they're, if they're really dangerous in the cyber domain, then they're a real threat because they can be anywhere in the world. They've weaponized the network. So North Korea is a particular threat because they got the nukes and they got the cyber ninjas. And we're hearing this over and over and over again. But it's not just the messaging. In the background, the military has been building and building and building around North Korea. And we're running these drills over and over again. And we keep getting closer and we're making them bigger and bigger. And it's provocative. The United States and South Korea have started a series of naval drills in waters near the Korean Peninsula. This comes as tensions remain high over North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. The exercises include the Attack Carrier Strike Force and Joint Anti-Special Operations Force and are aimed at enhancing combined operations capability. This is the South Korean Navy spokesperson. In the face of North Korean provocations at sea. The five-day drills will include anti-submarine and anti-missile exercises. There are also plans to engage in a mock assault on an enemy special unit trying to land on South Korean soil. Wow. A mock assault. That's all right to rub their faces in it. They're rubbing North Korea's faces in it right now. Special unit trying to land on South Korean soil. About 40 vessels are taking part, including the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan. 40 vessels. And South Korean destroyers. Fighter jets and patrol aircraft are part... And on top of that, they've been doing, I cut it off, but they've been doing um, military displays publicly in South Korea. They're, they're landing like there's the whole strips of jets and they're showing them off to the public, making big displays about it on the public television. They're flexing their muscles right in their faces right now. We are provoking them. You see, we hear the stories about, about their missile tests and about their nuke plans and about their cyber warriors. We have 40 ships off their front yard. And we're all over the place. We're running drills all over the place, and we're pissing off our allies. We're pissing off Japan, even. People in western Japan say they're alarmed by what they believe were flares released from U.S. fighter jets over their town. Local government officials are looking for an explanation. People in Hiroshima Prefecture captured video footage last week of what appeared to be flares coming from U.S. military aircraft. One resident said two aircraft were carrying out exercises above the town. You know, they, they're focusing on the flares, which are disturbing to see these falling fire objects from U.S. fighter jets flying over. Could you imagine? 
Could you imagine that for a second? Because you don't know their flares. But I, as someone who from time to time lives in the path of a Navy base where they have fighter jets landing and taking off all the time, and sometimes there's some sort of emergency and they are hauling ass, <laughs> uh, it shakes your whole damn house. It just, the whole place just, it's, it is a, it is like a mini earthquake when they're in, when they're in a rush. So if they were flying overhead doing this over town, that whole town is doing nothing but, it is, nobody's getting any work done, nobody's sleeping, nobody's having a conversation. It is a massive disruption. For about 30 minutes. Local officials have asked Japan's defense ministry to ask its U.S. counterparts for an explanation. People in and around the area have complained about U.S. aircraft training at low altitudes for a number of years. They're trying to flex their muscles. And you've heard stories about North Korean missiles going over Japan. That's why they're doing it there. They're flexing their muscles. So we're provoking North Korea in a very, very aggressive way. And then there's Iran. Another extremely, extremely dangerous situation. And there was a moment last week that we didn't talk about. But in context of all of this, I think I want to play it right now. Months ago, President Trump addressing cameras at the White House, flanked by his commanders. You guys know what this represents? So he has all of his uh, military commanders and their wives around him. It's a very proud moment. And they're all staggered and, uh, and whatnot. And you can hear as they come in, it's, it's really faint in the background. But, he's, but Trump, Trump's, he's, he's waving his thumb around and he says, you know what this represents? Do you know what this represents? This is the calm before the storm. Well, What's the storm, the reporter says. What's the storm? It's the calm before the storm. What's the storm? Could be, could be, um, calm before the storm. And then he just smiles like a jackass. We have the world's great military people in this room. So there's Trump boasting this is the calm before the storm. And then a couple of days later, we had this. Worst of all, the deal allows Iran to continue developing certain elements of its nuclear program. And importantly, in just a few years, as key restrictions disappear, Iran can sprint towards a rapid nuclear weapons breakout. I think that's one of his core concerns. One of his main concerns about the Iran deal, the quote-unquote Iran deal. Um, And shortly after uh, Trump made his uh, statement, uh, his good buddy and uh, now longtime, not longtime ally from this point forward, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Benny, went up on on, uh, public TV and uh, praised Trump. Actually, President Trump, for his courageous decision today. And as soon as that happened, I realized, okay, all right, now I understand. He boldly confronted Iran's terrorist regime. If the Iran deal is left unchanged, one thing is absolutely certain. In a few years' time, the world's foremost terrorist regime will have an arsenal of nuclear weapons. You already have. uh, So the, 
The problem I have with this deal is I, I don't I don't really have a, I don't really have a, a, an opinion, but it seems to me, based on my rough understanding, that Trump is basing some of his decision on bad data. I referred to this clip with him and Hannity. Yes. I think it was one of the most incompetently drawn deals I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. $150 billion given. We got nothing. We got nothing. They got a path to nuclear weapons very quickly. So $150 billion given. We got nothing. We got nothing. And then, and then again, the path to the nukes, which is really like that's the, that's the twist of the knife. But then he doubles down on the $150 billion. Which, my friends, we've explained this $150 billion before on this show. And think of this one. $1.7 billion in cash. Well, oh, it's $1.7. Okay. This is cash out of your pocket. Did he say $150 billion? Or, hold on. Why would I get $150 billion? Maybe I was just spazzing out. I think it was one of the most incompetently drawn deals I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. $150 billion. He did say, okay, all right, okay. Dollars given. We got nothing. We got nothing. They got a path to nuclear weapons very quickly. And think of this one. $1.7 billion in cash. This is cash out of your pocket. What? You know how many airplane loads that must be? Did you ever see a million dollars like a promotion where they have a million dollars and hundred dollar bills? It's a lot. of. I don't know why he's making such a, a big deal about this, because it, it either means he's really misinformed or he's manipulating you. And I, I guess I got to leave it up to you, but um, it's well established that the money that was given to Iran was their own money. It was their money. We were holding on to their money from a deal, which you should look into. And we sat on that. We never gave it to them. And as part of this deal, Iran wanted their money back. They wanted their money. Now, I'm simplifying it for brevity. But that's the money. Like, we didn't, we didn't go around and collect taxes. There wasn't an Iran tax on cigarettes. And then we somehow shipped U.S. hard-earned tax dollars over to Iran in cash. We gave them back their own money that we stole. <laughs> and I don't really understand. He goes on and on. This is $1.7 billion. You'd almost say, who would be authorized to do it? And who are the people that deliver it? You may never see them again, right? How do you not know this? You are, un- you are quote-unquote, decertifying the Iran deal based on this data? But, plain loads. But, but just plain loads. So... This is the uh, this is the worst deal he finishes. This is the worst deal. But that that would be if that if that is a true representation of his information then he's misinformed on the deal. I'm not trying to quibble if the deal's good or bad. I'm not trying to say I have an opinion about the deal. Deal deal deal. Um but a lot of people do. A lot of people do. The future of the Iran nuclear deal is now in the hands of Congress. Ambassador Nikki Haley. That's really what happens when he decertifies it. It's now just Congress. He just throws, he tosses the ball to Congress. Said the U.S. plans to remain in the accord for the time being. Haley spoke yesterday after President Trump announced he would not recertify the deal on Friday. Elizabeth Palmer is in Tehran, where the president's announcement is being widely criticized. President Trump's speech threatening decertification of the nuclear deal made waves here all through the weekend. And even today, people are still trying to digest the news. Now, I'm going to stop there because that's a bit of an exaggeration. They didn't even broadcast the news live. It wasn't even it's like it's not like it's 
It's that they're exaggerating the, the extent of it. But she does sit down, um, and uh, I think this is with the foreign minister of Iran, and I, I, I can't argue with his core points. We sat down with Foreign Minister Javad Zarif shortly after the speech. He did watch it live in Tehran, and his conclusion... President Trump's threat to pull out of a U.N.-backed multilateral agreement will hurt America itself the most. Now, I, that sounds like, like hyperbole, but here's the core logic behind it. If the United States president goes all in on a deal and the Obama administration went all in and, and really tries to put the weight of their authority and the federal government behind it, and then a couple of years later or even a year later, the next guy comes in and the deal's off? Well, who the hell is going to trust any deal with the United States? The way President Trump is handling it, it's widening the mistrust, not only between Iran and the United States, but between the global community and the United States, where the U.S. is no longer not just unpredictable, but unreliable. President Trump's speech has plunged already chilly relations between Washington and Tehran into the deep freeze. And- oh, 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 oh. But it is extremely risky. We're really, we're pushing North Korea. We're pushing North Korea. We're, we're right on their doorstep. We're pushing. And then with Iran, we're teasing. We're really kind of, come on, do it, do it. And it, it really just feels like Trump either desperately wants to go to war because that would win him another presidency and he doesn't care who he goes to war with because he feels like either one of these two situations need to be taken care of. So he's happy to take either one of them on because we have a great military and the military's greatest leaders are in that room with him, as he said. So why not just take care of one of these problems? That'll be Donald Trump's contribution. And if I was going to psychoanalyze the man, I'd say that he would feel like this would make his presidency historical. And he may be motivated in a, in a really twisted way to have a really important war. It really seems like in the background, we're doing everything we can to fuck with Iran and to piss off North Korea. We antagonize Russia. Something's going to give. Just can't I, I can't see it any other way. He must know this. It seems reckless to me. Maybe if you see it some other way, let me know. Let me know how you see it. I want to cover uh, a little more Harvey Weinstein because I have a larger premise about it. I think Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and Bill Clinton and many others are are part of a larger problem. It's it's a problem of people in power and authority that have power over other people. And it's it's perhaps a societal issue. And it is rampant. And you know it's rampant because they built into Harvey's contracts, into Weinstein's contracts, to allow tiered grace periods on sexual harassment suits. So he had tiered payments he could make and then be completely indemnified of any problems. And it's right in his contract. That's how baked in it was. From TMZ, Weinstein apparently had a clause in his contract that allowed for sexual harassment if he shelled out the money to make it go away. 
More on that. Harvey Levin is executive producer of TMZ.com, the outlet that is behind breaking that news. And he joins us tonight. Hi, Harvey. So this is one of those stories that I'm just about done with. But I think it does have a there is a there is a bigger story here. And it's a fundamental power structure problem with the way we do this. You should uh, if you want a book recommendation, <laughs> check out the book Sapiens. I think it's like a history of humankind. The book Sapiens. And I've, I'm right now, I'm reading it right now. I just got to chapter seven or eight. And um, it really is fascinating and eye-opening. And I think it's going to be endemic to anytime you have a structure that's large and then you get people that are in powerful positions in those structures, be it government or Hollywood businesses or Silicon Valley or any other business, a lot of times to lead a group like that and be in a position like that, you're often a certain kind of psychopath. I mean, look at all of the head politicians. Look at all of the most powerful people. They're all psychopaths. <laughs> it's, it's like you have to be a bit of a narcissist psychopath to think you're important enough to lead a group of people like that. It's like it's part of the mix. Look at all of the presidents. Look at all of the major politicians. Even large city mayors, it's, it's, um, it is endemic to an artificial power structure that we create by the shared illusions of structures, be it a government structure, be it a corporation. And we so commonly go about our day thinking that these things are real that we never stop to reevaluate the fact that these are just shared illusions. Companies are not real things. Governments are not real things. They're just illusions that we've created so that we all can work within a structure amongst each other in large groups. They may be necessary for us to cooperate, but they're held illusions. They don't really exist. We have paper, but, but we often don't respect words on paper. Look what we do to the Constitution all the time. So these are not natural, organic things. These are artificial illusions that we create by various levels of acceptance and the people who move up the chain in this illusion are more and more perverse. And that's why we're talking about Harvey Weinstein because it's not about a Hollywood drama story. It's about a fundamental issue in every single power structure, be it business, government, churches. It just seems to be happening. Boy, wow, what a busy week in Hollywood, huh? Yeah, and this is a crazy story. We've been working on this all day, and we just posted it. So let me explain it to you. The short story is this. The Weinstein Company allows for sexual harassment under the contract it signed with Harvey Weinstein. Here's what we know. In October of 2015, Harvey Weinstein signed a new contract with them. And under the contract, it says that if Harvey Weinstein gets sued, for sexual harassment, for any other kind of misdeed, and the company has to pay the judgment or a settlement, Harvey Weinstein can make everything good by doing two things. Number one, he has to pay the company back for what it paid the victim. So this is in the contract. These are provisions. Number two, Harvey has to pay a fine. And the way the fine is structured, for the first time he has to pay a settlement, the first time the company has to pay, Harvey has to pay a $250,000 fine. For the second judgment or settlement, he has to pay a $500,000 fine. For the third, $750,000. For the fourth or any number thereafter, 
he has to pay a million dollars each time the company has to pay right. uh, a settlement or judgment for any kind well, of a sexual well, let me ask you a question about settlement. That. And then he's good. He caps at a million. He pays a million from then on. How long did you say that that has been in place, that agreement? <clears throat> For two years. Okay, they so, signed, so but, essentially for the last two years, Weinstein and company has been uh, acknowledging that they absolutely know that this is going on. Well, Martha, when the contract was signed, the member of a member of the board of directors has now said they knew about settlements. He says we assumed, assumed that they were consensual uh, sexual relationships. We didn't ask. You know what? Our bottom line it sort of made it, uh, let's say, made us inclined not to ask the uh, hard questions. Now, there's a moment uh, that uh, was repeated often after the Harvey Weinstein revelations, and it was Corey Feldman, blah, blah, blah. Corey Feldman, this, blah, 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 blah. Are you familiar with this story? Corey Feldman came out ages ago. Ages, ages, ages ago. I mean, I was, I guess I don't really, it was the early 90s or the 80s and said, yeah, I was, I was molested as a child. And, shut up. You, don't say that. Don't shut up. Just, don't talk about it. And uh, you can't really find clips of it because it was so long ago. But I did manage to find a clip. You may have saw this floating around. I saw, I, I saw this and I thought, this really personifies the problem. And it's a clip from the early days of The View when Barbara Walters was still hosting. And listen to her reaction to this story. I'm saying that there are people that were the people that did this to both me and Corey yeah. that are still working. They're still out there. And they're some of the richest, most powerful people in this business. And they, are and they do not want they're... me saying what I'm saying right now. Are you saying that they're pedophiles? Yes. And that yes. they're still in this business? Yes. That's what, yeah, and that's what you were saying wow. in your book. When you talk- Now, the co-host there changes the topic. She's like, ooh, we got to be careful here. Talk about, yeah. Yeah. When you talk to and parents. Want me here right now. And Barbara Walters is still processing this. She's a little slower. The co-hosts are trying to bring him back on track, though. Corey. They are dead. They're- Corey, she says, to get his name, she touches his leg. Now, that is interesting that she's so uncomfortable that she wants to move the conversation along. But Barbara Walters is apparently so shocked by this. Listen to what her immediate reaction is after he's made this statement. His life is threatened. He and Corey Feldman were molested. There's, those people are still in power. This is a massive revelation on her show right now. And her response is... Well, I think it's the problem. There are a lot of parents out here yeah. who want to put their kids in this in this business. Here it comes. They, their kids are cute. They're great actors. Da, da, da. What would you say to a parent who just has the best of intentions who's coming here with their child? Mm-hmm. If um, you're saying that there's a lot of predators in this industry. It's a many feathered bird. OK, be careful what you wish for. That's what I'll tell you. Now, Barbara, just at this point, she's like she's flabbergasted. She's about to just unload. And I, it's not like a yell, but it's just so dismissive. You know, don't go into it with naivety. Don't go into it thinking that it's all roses and You're sunglasses. You're damaging and an entire industry. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to. That- I'm just trying to say that it's a very important, serious topic. You- I mean, you're da- how dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Sorry, I'm not trying you said to. That- Let me go back a little bit so you can hear. You're sunglasses are an entire industry. I'm s- how dare you? And then with that, she do- she doesn't listen anymore. And he goes on, and they try to change the topic. And that's that's from the '90s. That's from forever ago. <laughs> uh, and then there's this last story that uh, people have been submitting into the show, and I think it's worth playing. Um, because we talked last week about how Hillary was able to take this Weinstein situation and use it as political leverage to to get people to want to hear her take. And one of the one of the things that people really gave her a hard time for, it's my new pet peeve, is she took days, five days to come out. People don't even understand it. it takes her a couple of days just to get ready. 
So the fact that she came out in five days is pretty good. And we all assumed, well, in the meantime, that was because she was looking at her finances and she's figuring out how she's going to give that money back. And one of the first things she said is, I'm giving that money back. I donate to charity every, charity every year and I'm giving that money back. Uh, well, it turns out not giving the money back. Already spent Harvey it. Harvey Weinstein gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to politicians and to the Clinton Foundation over the years. In a statement today, the Clinton Foundation announced that it is not returning the money. It's refusing, saying that money was spent a long time ago on what it called, apparently without irony, charitable efforts. It's not the only time Weinstein has given big to the Clinton family. Almost 20 years ago, Weinstein was one of only a handful of people who donated the maximum to Bill Clinton's legal defense fund during the Monica Lewinsky impeachment scandal. Peter Schweitzer, well-situated to comment. He wrote the book Clinton Cash, and he joins us tonight. Peter, it seems to me there's a cost in not returning the money. If you're Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, who spent a better part of a week not responding to your old friend's sexual harassment scandal... Why wouldn't you just give the money to some virtuous charity and call it a day? Why would you refuse? Uh, that's a great question, Tucker. I mean, look, um, they're kind of in a pickle, the Clintons. Um, this is not a relationship with a celebrity or a Hollywood person that was sort of a flash in the pan. As you pointed out, they've known each other. They've had financial connections going on for 20 years. Uh, and Weinstein, you know, had an interview with Bill Clinton in 2012 on CNN in which he talks about the fact that, that they're friends and that he considered Bill right. Clinton a mentor. <laughs> mentor. Oh, boy. I yeah, uh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Oh, I didn't. I did not catch that in the first watch through on that. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up with the high note here for a moment. But I just want to take a moment and mention the Patreon page. We are an audience-funded show. Patreon.com/slash/unfilter. And we only picked up two patrons this week. I'll be thanking you guys though in the overtime, and I really do appreciate you because at least you kept the momentum going. Uh, and. I would appreciate if you enjoy this show when even when there's not some crazy news event happening, some breaking thing, if you would still consider jumping on and supporting us if you've been on the fence. Because a lot of times we'll have like massive breaking stories and we'll get some pickup. And then when news is sort of just we're checking in on stories or we're we're kicking around ideas or having discussions, we get less pickup. And it's. I don't know. You know, I, I just like to see it even out because it's it's like I, I kind of hate that this would be tied to disasters in a way. <laughs> that's sort of a weird thing. I think that's really what it is. Patreon.com slash unfilter. You get access to the supporter sync if you get into a certain tier. Also, if you just want to check out the full live show when YouTube cooperates, I post it for everybody just to kind of give you an incentive also to check out the page. So the whole live stream, when YouTube cooperates at patreon.com slash unfilter for the whole public, for absolutely everybody. And thank you to our patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter. I'm sure when Mr. Chase gets back, we'll also have a new edition of his sack. Now let's jump into the high note. We're going we're gonna to transition there with a bigger story that's kind of funny about the war on drugs in general. We have breaking news from Washington. Congressman Tom Marino, President Trump's nominee to be federal drug czar, has now withdrawn his nomination. An investigation by 60 Minutes and The Washington Post highlights Marino's role in the weakening of the Drug Enforcement Administration's control over opioid drug distributors. The president said yesterday he would look again at this issue. I did see the report. We're going to look into the report. We're going to take it very seriously because uh, we're going to have a major announcement probably next week on the drug crisis and on the opioid massive problem. Representative Marino sponsored a law limiting the DEA's enforcement power that took effect in 2016. My kind of guy. More than 64,000 Americans died that year from drug overdoses, most from opioids. You see, the false equivalency that they make is that the, the, the deaths were so high because of a lack of enforcement. 
But that's crazy, of course. But they don't ever challenge that premise. And so because he made it harder for enforcement, what they ought to do is don't don't consider it enforcement. Uh, call it destroying families and destroying career opportunities. You see, they didn't they didn't get enough people in jail and destroy their careers and break up families because of what they put in their own bodies. Does that does that reframe it? Nancy Cordes is on Capitol Hill. Nancy, good morning. Good morning. Here's what the president tweeted a short time ago. Representative Tom Marino has informed me that he is withdrawing his name from consideration as drug czar. There you go. This is the state of U.S. politics perfectly summed up because this guy was and I'm not trying to defend him. I, I The whole premise is just what upsets me because he made it harder for the DEA to enforce drug laws. Uh, he can't be the drug czar because he won't be hard enough. He has to be hard. He has to crack down there. He can't dial down enforcement. Ooh, wouldn't it be great to have somebody that wanted to go in there and just sort of demand, dismantle the drug war? That would really be something. That would really been amazing. Maybe one day. Now, we've talked a little bit about this last week. I think maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't because it seemed a little, I don't know, maybe glib. But the wildfires in California, which are just devastating as hell, definitely did take a toll on the cannabis industry. My friends, let's all pour one out for the weed. Recent fires have hit the marijuana industry, burning Whoa. dozens of farms and leaving many more plants damaged by the, the smoke. KPIX5's Julia Goodrich takes us to a marijuana farm in West Marin. Growers there say enough of this year's crop is ruined and the price of pot will probably go up. I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where they're going to allow pot to go across state lines. So some national media will be like, oh, the pot supplies in California consumes 40 percent or 70 percent, depending on the metric they use, of all of the cannabis in the country. And if they're, it doesn't work like that. The, the, the pot doesn't go across state lines. So if you're going to buy cannabis in Washington, it's only been grown in Washington. Just to get to this West Marin pot farm means trekking down steep terrain. There is no vehicle access. Once down the hill, a half million dollar cash crop that was in the direct smoky path of the tub's fire. We knew that we had to get our pot out immediately or risk losing everything. Chris Leenhouts is the master grower of this medical marijuana farm. As, as the sun rose, you could see the red glow in the sky and then you could see the ash raining down. And then that's when I realized that we needed to get this out immediately. I wonder if that guy's a pot smoker. What do you think? There was a red flag warning and heavy smoke was heading this way. What was going through your mind? My farm is literally going up in smoke. Yeah, exactly. I need to get this out of here or I'm going to lose the last nine months of my life. Besides worrying about fire, they also worried about water. All of their supply was being used to fight the tubs fire. So we had to manually use our pickup trucks to haul 100 gallons at a time up. So did all of the smoke affect this crop? That's still yet to be known. Workers had to come here in the middle of the night and work 24-7 to harvest 200 to 250 pounds worth of marijuana. They normally dry it on the grounds here. They had to haul all of the marijuana up the hill and bring it to a facility in Salinas. Smoke will ruin this crop. No, just say it's a smoky flavor. It can't be sold for medicinal use because of potential toxins. Mm. The final product isn't ready, so until it is, um, we're kind of waiting in limbo. I mean, I feel like people still buy that. I gotta be honest. And California's marijuana growers are up against a key lifeline, crop insurance. There's no insurance whatsoever. People have insurance on their individual 
houses, but not the crop itself. Yeah, I bet. Huh. Yeah, I guess. That is also probably happening to the wine industry, I would imagine, as well. Now, on the other end, as the industry gets more established, you're going to need more professionals. You're going to need more trained professionals to come into the market. And then they're going to demand higher paging wages, higher paging, higher paying wages. It's sort of like the circle of economy. But you got to start by getting that high-skilled talent out there. And there is a university that's aiming to do just that. The marijuana business is growing in states where it is legal, and now one university is taking notice. Northern Michigan University is believed to be the first college to offer a four-year degree in marijuana studies. The program began this fall, and students will take classes in biology and chemistry, as well as finance and marketing. I can understand, you know, some kid's going to go in there and be like, you know, he's going to go home, and his parents will be like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm studying to grow weed. But no, it's... You know, it's it's the organic part of it. It's not just like there's a, there's a lot of money in that. Officials at the university believe the program will be good for the pot industry, and they don't expect to be the only university with a marijuana-related degree. Uh-huh. Long. Uh-huh. Lion, times have changed. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh-huh. Yeah, then your kids You're kids old. Come home. Wow. Studying marijuana. Uh-huh. Okay. Old people. Old people. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Now the show isn't technically over. This is like the, 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 the veggies. But I do have some super tasty post-meal tidbits in the overtime, which is appended to this here file if you just want to stay tuned and enjoy it. You don't got to do nothing. I've just integrated it right into your stream. Otherwise, if you're departing, I would like to leave you with a bit of wisdom. Now, your unfiltered show's live on the Wednesdays. If the storms don't knock us offline... It's been very, very stormy here for the last few days. I didn't actually think we'd make it through the whole show. Because damn, it's windy here. Damn, it's windy. But when we don't get knocked off by Mother Nature, you can get our live time over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That'll convert it to your local time. We do it here on Wednesdays. Locally, in Jupiter Broadcasting time, I tend to get the stream fired up around 3.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. Start doing pre-show stuff, play some live stream clips. The version that goes on YouTube usually kicks in a few minutes after that after certain shenanigans that can't go on YouTube have been had. So there really is, I guess, a little more that even doesn't make it on YouTube. You can check that out. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We do have that unfiltered chat. discord.me slash jupitercolony to sign up. If you have clips, you can try sharing them there for a bit because it's not a super active chat during the week. So why not why not put it to use? Just look for the unfiltered chat room once you've joined. By the way, Discord app... Right there in the web browser, discordapp.com. Don't have to install nothing. Follow the network at Jupiter Signal. Follow me at Chris LAS. Follow Mr. Chase at Nunes. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you right back here next week. started it's overtime time
to you by our patrons. Patreon.com slash Unfiltered! And I know that each of you understand you have the power. Stay woke! Oh, yes. I am very woke today. Thank you. Thank you, Maxine. And thank you to our two new subscribers. Yes, two. The number two, like two fingers, two new subscribers. Holding up the line goes to Chad and David. You are responsible for our only forward progress this week. Thank you very much. This segment is dedicated to you and all of our current, past, and future supporters over at patreon.com slash unfiltered. This is the overtime. The overtime is where we get to do a little extra coverage. We continue maybe a thread. We pick up a new thread. Those kinds of things in the overtime. I don't think we have a particularly ton of things to get into this week. Nothing groundbreaking. A couple things I want to follow up on. And I'm just going to do one Nancy clip in the O Nancy segment this week. We've got to keep it moving. You know, I don't want... I just... Otherwise, if I watch too much Nancy, to be honest with you, my head starts to hurt. So let's start with... Uh, this one, it's, it's really more of a, of a breakdown type clip. We'll watch to see what she has to say and respond. Here we go. Take it, Nancy. Bases his decision on evidence. And, and that's a problem. You say you don't want to shut down the government, but the, the, no. the White House has made it pretty clear if the president doesn't get his priorities, like the wall uh, with the government funding bill in December, uh, that he is not, that they are not going to have the votes to keep the government open. Well, how, why are you putting that in us? They have the majority in the House and the Senate and the president's signature. They have the power to keep government open. And if they don't, if they can't get there on their own, what price will the Democrats demand for their votes? Well, it's a, it's a negotiation. It's not a price you demand. Certainly, we intend by the end of the year to have uh, the DREAM Act passed to protect. She really kind of cracked a smile there for just a second. And then she sort of dips her head down like <laughs> this innocent little Nancy move. Like we, This is one of the things that we're going to hold the line on is the DREAM Act. The DREAM Act passed to protect... Uh, young people, the president says, and I take him in good faith, he told us he cares about the young people. I think he cares about them because the American people care about them. And he's going to hear from the American people on the health care bill as well. Now, I sometimes wonder when Nancy says the American people, if they don't mean hired protesters and uh, organized American response, like we've seen when a bunch of people went in and disrupted town halls recently. That's a coordinated effort. It comes with some Soros money attached to it. And I, I could be wrong. She may mean just in general, the actual public may get off their asses. But in, in my experience, when high-level politicians like Nancy, specifically Nancy, promise that the American people will respond, what she really means is we have plans to hire crowds on demand. It's about them because the American people care about them. And he's going to hear from the American people on the health care bill as well. But we're moving from one thing to the next because that's the chaos that is uh, exists in the White House right now. And I I just maybe he's being ill advised. I don't know. So she is really smooth here. So what she's done is she takes the fact that she's bouncing around because she got onto health care accidentally. The question was about dreamers. And really, the core question was about government shutdown because that's the chaos. And she says we're bouncing around here for their votes. Well, it's a. It's a negotiation. It's not a price you demand. Certainly, we intend by the end of the year to have uh, 
the Dream Act passed. Okay, so the dream talking about the Dream Act passed is really where her mind disassociates itself now with the court question, which was the government shutdown. She's still tangentially connected to it, but she really begins to float off here. Protect uh, young people. The president says, and I take him in good faith. He told us he cares about the young people. I think he cares about them because the American people care about them. And what happened was, is in her effort to super serve her talking points, she's now lost the original question thread and begins to stumble around. And he's going to hear from the American people on the health care bill as well. But you're now we're on health care and you can tell she's she's fumbling around because the original question was about government shutdown as well. But we're moving from one thing to the next because that's the chaos. No, you are moving from one thing to the next, and it's the chaos in your mind. However, in a moment of, I suppose, brilliance, every sun ray has to make its way to the surface eventually after millions of years of effort from the core of the moon, or of the sun. (laughs) And she's a bit of a moon most of the time, is what I was going to say. She gets there, though. She blames the chaos on the Trump White House, but she she manages to turn around and say, well, I'm just jumping around because of Trump. But uh, we're moving from one thing to the next because that's the chaos that is uh, exists in the White House right now. And I- that's pretty smooth. She manages to explain her bumbling around by blaming Trump. I, I just I, maybe he's being ill advised. I don't know. But I do know that when he speaks, he does not speak from the basis of knowledge. That's why. Now, how is this answering the government shutdown question? It's so hard to deal with. I said to have said to him, when we've had our differences with Republicans across the aisle or down Pennsylvania Avenue, we've always been able at least to go forward based data, evidence, facts, a, a, a bottom line in terms of a number. That to say, unless I get a wall, I'm going to shut that government down is totally irresponsible for a president of the United States. And it's part of his war on the middle class. Because oh, because he wants, again, a tax bill that is unfair to them. If he doesn't get that uh, repeal, the affordable care. So I'm going to stop there. She does pretty good. Uh, you can see where the battle lines are without her actually specifically saying them. The tax bill, health issues, the dreamers. Now, there's been some recent fantasy talk about the Democrats retaking the majority. Trump's just ruining everything, and so it's possible. The next logical question you might ask yourself is what would the Democrats do if they had the majority? How, 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 how much hell would they raise for Trump? What would they do? Would they impeach him? So at the top of our show, I'm not sure you saw it, but we ran a report from Sarah Murray that says that some Republican members of Congress, Republican members, are concerned that if the Democrats take over after 2018, that you will try to impeach the president. Will you? You know, I think that's an easy argument for them to make. The only way the president uh, is impeached that's is not a yes or no. he does something that rises to, to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor. I think uh, Mr. Mueller's probe is going forward. We should let that complete itself. But it's pretty, uh, I think it's, it, it's a fairly transparent political ploy to try to engage the president's base vote by saying that Democrats who simply want to offer an alternative to what the president is offering would impeach him. What we would like to do is work with him. We would like would to they, actually get things done. Where would we get an idea like that? Where would we get an idea like that? Impeach 45! Where would we get an idea like that, guys? All right, so let's talk a little more about Trump. You guys remember the sound in Havana, the, the, the piercing sound that ruined people's hearings? I don't. Uh, is there a name for it? 
it was like a hypersonic sound attack. And there was diplomats in our embassies that essentially had their hearing really screwed up by this attack. And it's been sort of mysterious where it came from. Initially, it was... Could have been... Could have been the Cuban government. Could have been... Could have been the CIA. Could have, could have been some rogue intelligence agency. Could have been... Could have been... You know, all these could have, could have been. And now, as time's gone on, pretty much the CIA and the U.S. government come out and say, no, it wasn't us. It was the Cubans that did it. And the Cubans are, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's been... It's a fascinating story. Here's a little more on it. Thank you, Mr. President. General Kelly said on uh, just last week that you believe that Cuba could stop the attacks against Americans. Do you believe then that Cuba I do, is? I think Cuba, do you believe Cuba it. is responsible. Sure. I do believe Cuba is responsible. I do believe that, and it's a very unusual attack, as you know. But I do believe Cuba is responsible. Yes. There you go. So he probably has reason to believe that. I'm following the story. If you know any more about this, I had last week the sound in Havana or whatever they call it. I linked that in the show notes. Like I've seen some of that stuff, but if you know more about it, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love it. Anything really? Just at Chris Elias. Tweet it. Tweet it to me. Give it to me. I want it? I need it. It's strange. It's a mysterious, mysterious story. Speaking of Trump press conferences, what we weren't. Here's another one. Mr. President, So the question comes in at the end of a press conference. Boy, look how Trump sits. It's really interesting. Boy, and he looks tired too, doesn't he? So the reporter asks, do you approve of Steve Bannon's war on Mitch McConnell and the Republican establishment? And this is after Trump and McConnell have been making nice. Kelly's off to Trump's side here, and Trump responds. Well, Steve is very committed. He's a friend of mine, and he's very committed. He's a friend of mine, and he's very committed. This is Trump signaling, even when he perhaps doesn't mean to, or perhaps does mean to. But what's he saying right there? He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine. What he's saying is, we're not enemies. We're getting along. We're still on good terms. He's a friend of mine. You know, you have different levels or gradients of this. He's someone I respect. He's someone people tell me about. He's somebody I heard a lot about. Uh, He's an individual. Um, you, you know, then to degrading terms where he'll, he'll even begin um, branding people with nicknames like Crooked Hillary. So he's got a range of how he addresses people. And Bannon falls into the friends category. And it's interesting how Trump communicates because he, he signals so much in his basic communication style. Either intentionally or not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. But either way, you're able to grok that he and Steve are still on good terms. Very committed. He's a friend of mine and he's very committed to getting things passed. I mean... Look, I, I have, you know, despite what the press writes, I have great relationships with actually many senators, but in particular with most Republican senators. But we're not getting the job done. And I'm not going to blame myself. I'll be honest. They are not getting the job done. <laughs> you know, very gracious of you. And I'm not going to blame myself. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. They are not getting the job done. We've had... Healthcare approved, and then you had a surprise vote by John McCain. Uh, we've had other things happen, and uh, they're not getting the job done. And I can understand where Steve Bannon's coming from, and I can understand, to be honest with you, John, I can understand where a lot of people are coming from, because I'm not happy about it, and a lot of people aren't happy about it. Oh! Tough talk. Tough talk. Bannon's still in the uh, green column, I suppose. Did you hear about the U.S. pulling out of UNSECO? U-N-S-E-S-C-O, I think is what it is. This clip will tell you a little bit about what that is. 
The U.S. State Department has announced that the country is withdrawing from UNESCO, the U.N.'s educational, scientific and cultural organisation. Well, one of the main reasons cited by the State Department is concern over UNESCO's alleged anti-Israel bias Uh and the organisation's mounting arrears. Can't have anti-Israel biases. Well, six years ago, member states voted to accept the state of Palestine into UNESCO, a move that angered Uh Israel and its U.S. ally. Yeah. For more on this story, I'm now joined by R.T. Samira Khan in Washington. I don't really think you need any more. That kind of explained it all right there. I mean, Hi there, Samira. So what are the full reasons behind this decision? <laughs> well, Washington announced that the U.S. is withdrawing from UNESCO, the U.N.'s cultural body it found in 1945, citing anti-Israel bias and the need for fundamental reform in the organization. In the, organization. Uh, the U.S. said that the move will take effect on December 3rd, uh, 31st, Excuse me. The UNESCO director general said the move was a ma- matter of profound regret. Let's take a look. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I regret it already. I regret it already. Remember last week how we were talking about timeline questions with the Vegas shooting? That's still the main narrative this week. Timeline questions. Tonight, the mystery of the missing six minutes on the <laughs> 32nd floor Ooh. of Mandalay Bay. New developments tonight in the Vegas massacre investigation that shed light on a haunting question. Could the shooter have been stopped? Trace Gallagher, live in our West Coast newsroom with these new developments. Hi, Trace. Hey, Trace. How's it going, man? Hi, Martha. I want to emphasize that Las Vegas police have not said exactly when the first 911 call came in from Mandalay Bay security or anybody else inside the hotel. The Associated Press is now citing a U.S. official who says the hotel waited until after Stephen Paddock opened fire on concertgoers before notifying police. That is huge because we know at 9.59 when security guard Jesus Campos was shot in the leg, he radioed and or called security about the shooting. And seconds later, maintenance worker Stephen Shuck radioed this. Listen. Call the police. Someone's firing a gun up here. Someone's firing a rifle on the 32nd floor down the hallway. Right. Call police. The concert shooting began at 10.05 p.m., meaning six minutes went by before police were notified that a gunman was holed up on the 32nd floor. But MGM, which owns Mandalay, is again disputing police, saying, quote, This doesn't have to be a, um, boy, I've seen this twisted to so many different conspiracies online. And I think, I think I I gave the wrong impression last week that I'm buying into some of these more than I apologize if you can hear my my blinds in the background making a quacking noise <laughs> or a farting noise. I'm not sure if it's coming across on mic. It's a windstorm here in the studio, and <laughs> it's blowing through the cracks of the window. It's making like a quacking noise to me. Anyways, I, I'm not really subscribing to any particular theory with these shootings. I find that to be a kind of a waste of time. How can we ever really know all the details from where we sit? But it strikes me that the... The delay in calling the police may have been the hotel asserting a certain prerogative to attempt to stop the shooter themselves with their own private security. Perhaps? Seems to be something Vegas hotels like to have is their own private security. He's saying, quote, the 9.59 p.m. time was derived from a Mandalay Bay report manually created after the fact without the benefit of information we now have. Oh. 
We are now confident that this time stated in the report is not accurate. MGM believes Stephen Paddock began firing at concertgoers within 40 seconds after Jesus Campos reported that shots were fired and that Vegas Metro police officers and Mandalay Bay security immediately responded to the 32nd floor. But now the lawyer for Paige Gasper, who was shot and injured at the concert and has filed a lawsuit against MGM and others, says that if police were not notified until after the shooting, that's a problem. Watch. It was 911 called, and the whole chain of command seemed to have broken down here because for six minutes, nothing happened, and then this um, criminal started shooting at, at these innocent people. Vegas Metro Police say even though Jesus Campos was shot before the attack in the concert, not after, he still prevented Stephen Paddock from fully implementing his plan, saying the fact that Paddock had a gas mask in his room and explosives in his car suggest he may have wanted to continue his rampage on a different target. Meantime, 11 days, still no closer to a motive, and the FBI admits being a bit baffled. Yeah. I, if I, you know, I think because I say, because I, hmm, I think because I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out he was running arms, that made it sound like I was buying to like 4chan theories or whatnot in last week's episode. I want to, what I want I want to maybe restate that. This could have just been a crazy person, but I also believe there is a distinct possibility that somebody who's gotten wrapped up in a lot of bad stuff could also just be somebody who would be the right kind of psychopath to do something like this. As in, if he was potentially a gun runner, he would also be maybe more inclined to be a psychopath that would murder people because he's selling guns to murderers. I don't know. That's why it just wouldn't surprise me. I'm not saying I subscribe to the theory. There's also a story last week that I, I didn't quite fit into the show Mostly because I think it required a lot of editing. And I gave a pass at some of the editing, and I wasn't happy with the results, so I set it aside. And it was it was a Project Veritas video that just needed to be sort of cut down and condensed. Now, I'm going to play this, this clip because it's RT's attempt at doing that. And this is a fascinating story about, really about YouTube censorship and the New York Times and kind of the kind of thing that Project Veritas has gotten good at. The journalistic standards of the New York Times newspaper have been questioned after a video surfaced of one of its editors revealing his political and professional views. And you're going to be helping with the Times, right? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. I will be objective. Yeah. Air quotes. So this guy is the audience strategy editor for the New York Times, and he says after the Clinton campaign, I'm like, no, I need to get back to news and keep doing shit because like this isn't going to change. Well, the man you saw in the video there, Nicholas Dudik, is an audience strategy editor for the New York audience Times. Audience strategy he says editor. He previously worked for the campaigns of both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Besides that, he once claimed that former FBI director James Comey was his, quote, godfather, although he later <laughs> changed his story on that. The New York Times has reacted to the revelations released by Project Veritas. In a statement, the newspaper did admit that Dudek apparently violated the outlet's own ethics code. But they claim that he exaggerated the control he actually has at the outlet. 
However, an editor bragging about his own bias might turn out to be just the tip of the iceberg as Project Veritas has released further revelations regarding Dudik and his connections to people at Silicon Valley. With more on that, here's Arty Samira Khan. They have such cheeky teasers. Project Veritas has just released its second video featuring audience strategy editor Nick, uh, Nick Dudik, uh, who delved further into influencing the news, and uh, but this time through social media manipulation. Oh. Uh, he even calls himself the gatekeeper who... Uh, decides what goes out and uh, what doesn't. But what's particularly interesting is that uh, sometimes his decisions aren't made in the interests of the media organization he's working for. As an editor, I, I'm a gatekeeper, so I can choose what goes out and what doesn't go out. And let's say we wrote something about Facebook negatively. We actually just did a video about Facebook negatively. And I chose to put him in a spot that I knew wouldn't do What well. was the story about? Now, in that particular soundbite. Dudek uh, refers to the New York Times video, uh, how Facebook is changing your internet posted back in September. Uh, besides that, he also bragged about how his friends, quote, curate the front page of YouTube. Uh, Project Veritas also managed to reach one of Dudek's uh, YouTube connections, friend and former colleague Ernest Petty, uh, who works as YouTube's brand and diversity curation lead. Brand and diversity curation lead. How about that for a title? Uh, Petty explained how YouTube pushes what he calls legitimate news to the top. Now, this is uh, obvious. If you look at the YouTube feed, it's so obvious there is a human selecting it. And YouTube has said as much. But now we have, as of this, because of this Project Veritas leak, we know that this, uh, this lead position, that <laughs> the diversity lead position, um, is hand-selecting content that uh, they deem legitimate which that that is that is an incredible amount of power if you look at the size of the youtube platform that's an incredible editorial power that really is uh really i think not enough thoughts been given to to that because that's a massive amount of influence it's really staggering how YouTube pushes what he calls legitimate news to the top, uh, manipulating algorithms to promote certain news pieces and even censor content. Uh, but according to Petty, his team has the ability to control the news carousel, uh, saying that a relationship with YouTube is, quote, invaluable for Dudek and The New York Times. Uh, and on Hidden Camera, he revealed uh, that YouTube engineers uh, sometimes intervene manually to change trending videos. In very rare cases, we will try to make up for the fact that something isn't in the trending tab. Recently, there was a very obvious Hillary Clinton video that this was done too. Okay. It's very rare. Okay. But in those cases, then we will like use some human intervention to make sure that like to encourage the thing to be there, basically. Now, we requested YouTube to confirm or deny whether or not... That was the gatekeeper, by the way. Not, uh, ...Petty works for the platform and for comments uh, about the allegations made in the video, but we've received no response as of yet. There you go. That was your diversity league gatekeeper defining the news feed right there. Isn't that something? Shake it off. You want to shake it off? Shake it off. Switch to something else. Well, we're talking about the media. So that was the New York Times. Of course, the uh, television media is, is way worse. Of course, Van Jones is uh, now uh, selling a book. So he's uh, stepping everything up. All his commentary is being stepped up a few notches because uh, he's trying to fix the left. Tell them how they've missed the, missed 
So he's on, uh, he's on Don Lemon's show. And they're having a nice conversation. When the Trump supporter begins to say something and the whole thing just falls apart. So I'll back it up a bit so we don't have to watch the whole thing. We'll come at we'll come out of Van Jones and we'll let the we'll just let the train go down the rails. And if it wrecks, wasn't our fault. Wasn't our fault. Because they'd rather play politics and divide the country for their political game as opposed to uniting the country for the country. That, that's a very good point because if you're in the Rust Belt. If you're in coal country and you're a Trump voter, you don't have a job, you you aren't being listened to, and you want people to listen to you. Man, I – boy. Isn't this like – I mean I I hate to do this actually, but I just – I intellectually just have to be honest with myself. This to me feels a lot like if a white person were sitting here trying to explain the struggles of Don Lemon Uh, because Don Lemon is a well-to-do from the coast type person who lives in a city and works on a national television show it is is famous and then sits and is is an anti is is, is an on the record anti-trump person thinks he's a racist thinks he's an idiot and then he tries to project for trump supporters it feels it feels gross to me and it feels like he would he would jump all over somebody he would he would shut somebody down if it was a reverse situation where a white person was doing this about some 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 other you know some other person who was African American, then that would be all of a sudden um, completely unacceptable. But in this case, when Don's doing it, it's it's completely fine, even though it seems like the same evil. You have a job, you, you aren't being listened to. You want people to listen to you, your issue that's affecting you. Then why won't you listen to the issue that's affecting someone else? Oh, that, oh, so you can hear he really has contempt because he said, well, if they just want people to listen, then how come they're not willing to listen? Bunch of assholes. He really, he, he thinks he's got him. He, he's really proud of himself. You can see it, too, in his face. He's proud of this. That's affecting you. Then why won't you listen to the issue that's affecting someone else? I think it's, it seems to be. I, well, it's I think it's a little bit. I think. It's, oh yeah, he's got it. He's got him now. And of course, the time. And he's he then turns and addre- addresses the end of that question to the Trump supporter. Van Jones and the gal who I've forgotten her name are looking across at the Trump supporter too. So it's all eyes now. All right, he's got you on hypocrisy. See, he he's not looking at this guy the entire time. He's bringing the question up. This is this is fascinating. The entire time he's making his great point, he's really looking at Van Jones and the gal, his left supporters, almost the almost the entire time. Wow, it's not until he says the word hypocrisy, he kind of pivots and then then directs the question at the Trump supporter and the other two CNN hosts at the same time lock in on the Trump supporter. So it's obvious we're putting the hypocrisy question on you. Very good point, because if you're in the Rust Belt, sure. if you're in coal country and you're a Trump voter, you don't have a job, you, you aren't being listened to, and you want people to listen to you, your issue. See, he's not speaking to the Trump guy at all. He's really kind of pulling in support there from Van Jones. He's Van's just sort of nodding his head and looking, yeah, right, you're right. Then here, watch. Watch him turn at the last second. That's affecting you. Then back to Van. Why won't you listen to the issue that's affecting oh, here we go. someone else? Now he's laying it down on the Trump supporter. I, I think it's, it's, it seems to be I, well, it's I think it's a little bit. I th- Ooh, and then hitting him with the hit. Oh, just bam. He's really got him. And boy, he's proud of himself. And Van's like, yeah, you got him. I think it's a little bit different than that. I think a lot of people say you have the right to protest. 
do you need to do it in a way that that comes across as being disrespectful to men and women that have fought for this country and disrespectful to the American flag to do it? I also think there's part of this, which the conversation I have every day. And I uh, see Don's not happy with this because Don Don thought he really had him on the hypocrisy thing. And he just he just ninja his way around the whole hypocrisy question. And damn it, Don's not going to like that because Don's pretty proud of himself fought for this country and disrespectful to the American flag to do it. I also think there's part of now watch Don really quickly here. He looks away. He's pissed. He's pissed. Conversation I have every day, which is Colin Kaepernick, I think, is very much become a, a hypocrite on this issue. The guy doesn't even vote in the elections. He didn't even Listen, register to vote. That's, and all, that's care, all well but, and good. Listen, Listen, and, no, and I think you're right. I get, but because well, hold a lot on. of Americans see hold it that on, way. Hold on. Because you're saying in a way that is fitting. Who, who's to say which way you should protest is fitting? It wasn't seen as a protest of the flag until the president made it that issue. As a matter of fact, as I, you know, Colin Kaepernick spoke to a veteran. This is what they have devolved into now, is they just sit here and they churn this stuff all the time. Who said, I think it would be more respectful if you Correct. kneel instead of sat during the national anthem. And the uh, president made it into an issue. Well, Why couldn't and, the president but, say, there's a reason? No, you're making it into an issue right now. It's literally what you're doing right now, Don. That Colin Kaepernick, as Van said, is not standing during the national anthem. I represent all Americans. Let's understand why he's not standing and see if we can come to some sort of... Because so what do you think of that straw man, huh? I, I, about it. Look, I, I think there's... I, I, don't, I don't know if you're going to have a consensus as long as people simply see, by a lot of these players, flat-out disrespect... For but the flag. Now, now hold on. it wasn't seen I, that way that's, until the that's, president and, and, made it into and again, an issue. Well, a lot of the players also didn't protest until they started to protest Donald Trump. You had whole teams stay in the locker room. You had whole teams because come out that had never come out before. Someone is telling you how to be an American. Someone is forcing. I, 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 why, I just, why would you force? Why are you forcing patriotism on? Well, let's be clear. You can't no force one's patriotism. forcing it. The president has a right, and this I think is, this is and an obligation. Where is this going? Every president has an obligation to protect and defend the honor and the integrity of the flag, the national anthem, because of the, pre because of the President of the United States of America. Which is, which is respecting that. Well, first of all, we no, don't even... No one's saying they don't have a right to protest, though. I want to make that clear. Everyone picks and chooses about it. We, we don't even know if it's right, for, according to the flag code, to have the flag stationary behind him in that interview they did with Fox tonight. Because the flag but, is supposed but, but to be free-flowing. But, but everyone picks and chooses how no, they want but, to right. respect every, or disrespect every, every, the flag. Every, 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 <laughs> Can you believe this is the state of... We just have to document it from time to time. We all know it's, it's politics and it's hypocrisy. Uh, this is what the media is turning his presidency into, right here. Uh, this is what we watch on a daily basis. I think because if you're, if you're respecting the flag and the national anthem and, and what this country was built on, the people who fought and died, fired up. fought and died for you to be able to protest in whatever way you want to. That is Don, the American way. You not know, to tell you people know that it's how inappropriate during the national anthem to chug a beer. The same way. Don, like, what you? to blow bubbles in church. I'm in, I'm in a, a bar almost every weekend that. during football season, eating, having wings and beer, and everybody's chugging beers, and and I look around. What? 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 <laughs> What's that? I'm saying when you're at the who are when screaming you're at about the people field. not standing. Can you when believe you're at this? The field, you know it's different. Don't act like how it's is not. it different? Why, why is it even? Why is it even done? Why is it even done? To honor. Why is it done? Let me answer the question. 
It's to honor the United States of America, what we become we as a country. We know we're in America. You're going to ask a question. At least but let me we finish know, it. But, but you're giving no, you're some bull you crap no, answer. We like know. No, no, it's you not. You like my answer. answer. That's is not bull, bull crap. It's not true. Because we know we're in America. Again, let me it's not, it's not as if we're playing some international country. It's two American teams playing each other. We know Done. that we're on American Done. soil. You're that we smarter have than this. No, you're smarter than this. No, don't tell me I'm smarter than that. Yes, I'm smarter than the answer. I'm smarter than the bullshit answer that you're giving. Do you put your feet? It's not BS. It is bullshit. Love it. This is why you watch the show, right? Because we save you from 99.5% of that. And every now and then we share just a small glimpse of all of the crud that we sift through to make this show possible. Unfilter is truly just the news you really got to know about. Thank you for making it possible. Patrons, patreon.com slash unfilter. Thank you for joining me for the whole dang show. If you made it through the overtime, say something in the comments as part of the overtime club. This is, now gonna, this is gonna be a thing. We're gonna have to change the name though, so that way I know you actually stuck around. So this week it's overtime club. So if you're part of the overtime club, drop it in the comments below, hit the thumbs up. Those are things you do on YouTube now. I don't know where oh, Discovery, right? Discovery? What? Brand recognition! I don't even know what that is! I hate YouTube! What? Oh! Views! Okay! Alright, yeah, give it a thumbs up. Alright, thanks for being here. See you next week. What do you put? Put your feet. It's not BS.